Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15-second skip button. Enjoy. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Paul Cockle and I'm the founder of 911 Rensport. The Driven Chat podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Hello there and welcome to the latest Driven Chat podcast. My name is John Markar and as you have just heard there, this week I'm joined by Paul and we are in an amazing space, in an amazing little office overlooking an amazing workshop surrounded by Porsche 911s. That office and that workshop is of course Rensport. Thank you so much Paul for joining us this week. That's fine, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I get the I get the same view every day, day in and day out. So it does wear off a little bit. Does it wear off? Yeah. I was going to ask that if it ever gets boring, but I, you know, I look at these still with this kind of mystical admiration, you know, childhood hero cars. So for me, it's always exciting. So do you think it has has that kind of excitement worn off a bit over the years? I still get the excitement out of building them, and I still get the excitement out of driving them. But I must say. In the last week, I've been driving home in an Escort Cosworth. Have you? So that def- I think I saw that outside. So that defies everything then, doesn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's, sometimes you can look at something too much and then it's just you need to get away from it. But no, that's, that's obviously one of those childhood dream cars as well, which has been uh, reassuringly disappointing getting one now at my age. <laughs> <laughs> so is that yours? You own that? I do, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had one when they were new, and I uh, so I bought that one uh, before Christmas because it was just a really nice example of the of the same model. It's the small turbo one that I had when when I was in my twenties, um, early twenties, I should say. And 
it was fast then, but it doesn't feel so fast now. It's a common theme, isn't it, when you speak to people that have perhaps owned a car, or there's like a childhood hero car that they've always dreamt of, and then you finally meet it later in life and go, oh, <laughs> it's perhaps not as magical as I remember, or as I go. I'm going to guess, though, it's a little bit easier to insure now than it was in your early 20s. Yeah, because I don't think anybody steals them anymore because there's none on the road. No, but, that's it. Uh, I think life's a lot easier when you get into your 50s anyway. <laughs> Here's hoping. Yeah. <laughs> so, Paul, um, with these episodes, I mean, we love talking to people like yourself who've built a business out of, I assume, passion. Perhaps we'll find out the details of that shortly. It is worth noting, just for you, dear listener, that we are recording this, as I said at the beginning, in an office space overlooking a workshop. So you will probably hear throughout this recording a bit of workshop noise in the background, uh, perhaps some rumbles of a flat six rolling in and out of workshops, uh, but I'm not, uh, I'm not too disappointed by that. I'm sure you'll forgive us for that as well, because, of course, it adds a bit of atmosphere to the recording. It just shows that we're doing it for real, in real life. But, Paul, one of the questions I always like to ask, people like yourself especially those that have built up a business like yours, is a question about where all this started. So do you have a memory, it could be from when you were very small, very young, or any particular memory that sticks out as possibly the reason that's got you sitting in the chair you're sat in now running the business you're running? I think probably my earliest memory is going to be of my dad, who was a a car designer um, before I was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 70s for Ford oh, wow. and down in London, Dagnum, Dagenham, yeah. the Dagnum dustbins. <laughs> uh, and then he moved up to, uh, he joined into the Roots Group and Chrysler yeah. in the 70s when I was born, which is why he moved then up to uh, Kenilworth, which is near Coventry, which is where all the manufacturing was on. Yeah, And he sort of evolved and did lots of car design. So... He would always be bringing home concept cars from different companies and so on. So I think it was always in, you know, that from the day I was born, there's always something to do with cars in the house, mm. albeit sort of not your normal run-of-the-mill cars. Um, so I think that's probably where it all initially started. Yeah. Um, until he, he came out of the motor trade sort of in the 80s and I was growing up and by the time I was in my early teens... I wasn't really interested in what my parents were doing anyway. Mm. So you go your own direction then. Yeah, I suppose so. So do you think, as a child, did you think, I'll I'll do something similar? I'll either be designing or engineering cars at some point? Or did that, was that just like a, was cars always just an enjoyment factor as a child? As a child, I wanted to be a long distance lorry driver. Did you? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I used to watch the film Convoy. Okay. Uh, which is an old, which I don't know, I can't I don't know whether that was in the 70s or in the 80s, <laughs> but it's just like, I want to go and be a long distance lorry driver. So wow. it's, it's sort of quite bizarre, but my kids actually asked me, What did you want to do when you were younger? And it's like a long distance lorry driver. <laughs> I can't think of anything worse to do than that today, to be honest with you. But that, that was my, my first moment. But. It obviously does show that it was to do with vehicles. Yeah. Obviously, I was going down the wrong route there, but uh, that, that's where it. That's what that sort of first memory of what I wanted to do. Gotcha. Um, and then it, it sort of it evolved from leaving school and doing my O levels. I was in the last year of doing O levels back in the eighties. I didn't stay on to do sixth form because I didn't I, I didn't really enjoy it and I'd already already built my first couple of Lambrettas which is okay. where it started in the garage at home some old vintage Lambrettas and yeah. restored them so I had one when I was 
ready to ride at 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so when I left school, it was my dad was trying to push me down the direction of maybe going into an architect's office and doing architecture because I was good okay. at technical drawing. Yeah. But my heart was sort of working on cars and doing stuff with cars. Interesting. Um, so I ended up doing my, uh, I ended up doing the, it's a, a sort of exams back then to get into different garages as an apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. So I did the um, TWR Jaguar yeah. one, which I got offered a place for, uh, which so was in Coventry. In Tom Walkinshaw Racing. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, they were big in the 80s. Yeah. So this would have been 86 or 87. Yeah. Um, and then I also went, uh, I went and did a, uh, a test and a sort of interview, uh, at the local Porsche garage, which was in Warwick at the time. Okay. So it wasn't OPCs then it was, it was called Monarch Cars mm-hmm. of Warwick and that was the Porsche dealership. So, you know, they've changed now. Everything's OPC Porsche and course, it's yeah. the name of the town, isn't it? So yeah. it was the Warwick one. And I got offered both jobs and there was another garage as well somewhere, but <clears throat> I wasn't interested in it. I can't even remember what it was. <laughs> you know. um, but I, that's that was my first step into working on 911s, which was the air called 911s when they were new. Yeah. Um, so I started there in 1987. Excellent. So it's quite yeah. a few years ago now. Yeah, 35, 36 years, yeah. I was on £27.50 a week. Were <laughs> you really? Yeah. Wow. It was all part of the youth training scheme. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So, was it? I mean, was it purely by chance? You say you went for TWR and the Porsche job. Um, were you particularly drawn to Porsche? I'm thinking. I'm trying to imagine the the life of a child whose dad's designing cars for the Roots Group. So I'm thinking, you know, Hillmans and Rileys and things like that. As a, that's that's the kind of thing you're used to seeing. Was Porsche always looked as as a kind of a luxurious version of motoring in comparison to what you were surrounded by? I think I think back in the 80s, Porsche was a much more luxurious brand than what it is today. Interesting. It's evolved yeah. into a more of a... There's a lot more people can readily afford to go and get a Porsche now. Mm. You know, back then you had to be... It was the yuppie era, so yeah. you had to be quite wealthy. There weren't so many. Mm. Um, and if, you know, it was a sign of... It was that corny sign of success, wasn't it? Uh, red yeah. 911 he's doing well sort of thing yeah, yeah. I think a, a lot of it was that um, it was just such a nice environment when I actually went there for the interview it was like you know all the workshop was tiled and it was modern and sort of futuristic ish compared to every other garage that I'd been in and had a look around and I think that's what sort of led me towards it yeah. I didn't really I can't remember ever being a massive Porsche fan mm-hmm. you know I didn't have pictures of them on my wall in my bedroom mm. uh, pictures of motocross bikes okay. <laughs> that's what I was into <laughs> but you know so that's where it went interesting interesting it's interesting as well what you say there about you know, that that sign of success because I think this is something that a lot of people forget a lot of people disregard is that yeah as you say Porsche 911s in that era they really was it was a sign of success things like PCP and financing didn't really exist at that point. So if you wanted a 911, you were going to buy one cash. You know, you had the means to walk into a showroom, take a car, give them the equivalent of today, what would be a hundred plus thousand pounds, and drive away in your car. And that really was a, 
you know, you were doing well then if you were able to do that, weren't you? Yeah, the world's changed now. If you, you can walk into a Porsche dealership and you can walk into a, an Audi dealership that obviously bought production costs down for Porsches, you know, it's they're not they're not massively more expensive than going buying an Audi RS6 mm. sort of thing or you know there's cheaper ones than an Audi RS6 but it it has evolved into the world of um how much is that going to cost me a month yeah. but back in the 80s it wasn't it was just you, if you needed to buy a car for 30,000 pounds which was the price of a house mm. you had to have 30,000 pounds yeah. you know so it was it was a sign of of wealth and it was sort of it was never going to be within my reach mm. You know, it was one of those. Yeah. So there you were as a, a plucky young apprentice, I assume, there in your your work bay, working on lovely air-cooled 911s. I assume there's a whole story that's gone from that point there to running your own business, walking into your own premises, and an amazing premises this is, by the way, just for a, to kind of paint the picture for anyone that's not seen Rensport online. I'm sure you'll be heading over to the Instagram feeds now to have a quick look. But this is essentially a two-floor unit, huge, huge unit, where downstairs on the ground floor, we've got a line of 911s. How many bays have you got down there? I think there's about... 20 odd down there at fantastic <laughs> and then upstairs where we're recording is a bit more of a showroom dare i say showroom where you've got a couple of your cars that you've built a couple of a few customer cars and some cars for sale it was it, yeah i mean it, it was originally built to be a showroom and we do have a couple of cars for customers that are for sale up here as showroom mm-hmm. but initially when we designed and developed the building it was going to be build the cars downstairs put them upstairs in the showroom and then sell them, but it's sort of evolved now that there's a waiting list and you've got to wait for it to be built. <laughs> so upstairs tends to be a, a bit of a free storage area for people that are dumping their cars on us before they pick them up sort of thing. Gotcha. So let's let's work through that timeline then. So young first job as an apprentice working on air-cooled 911s, where did your career route take you from that early point? So my, my sort of career changed... So I did, I did my first two and a half years or three years at Monarch Cars. Mm-hmm. So I was, on the, I was on the YTS scheme and it was £27.50 a week. The second year went up to £35 a week. You know, and bearing in mind, my mates were working in companies making boilers and they were on £150 a week. So yeah. I wasn't on very much money. So I was, I was doing my own thing and fixing engines up for people just to try and boost my income and do cars up and stuff but I enjoyed doing what I was doing and I didn't all my money went on petrol and I just burned the cup burn around and sort of use it all up that way you know I didn't have a an elaborate lifestyle Mm. um but I got so I then the guy that I ran under my so my apprenticeship was a guy called Malcolm Chambers so he was the senior technician at Monarch Cars at the time Mm -hmm. He got offered a job with uh, Mike Jordan and Martin Quick at uh, Eurotech, mm-hmm. which were doing the production Porsche series at the time. Right. Yeah. In old, older 911s, uh-huh. which actually weren't that old back then. It was the <laughs> 2.7 RSs. Okay. Uh, and 911Es and sort of things from the from the early 70s. Right. Um, and then he sort of basically got me a job there as well. Mm-hmm. I went there was so there was a junior technician at Eurotech at the time who I went to college with as well because I was doing day release so I knew him and I sort of found the opening to the door in there and then I started working at, at Eurotech which was 
still working on Porsches. It was a it was a massive leap from going from a, a lovely um, state of the art workshop to a bit of a drafty old building working <laughs> on older cars and and so on. But I really enjoyed it, and I, I did have such a really good time in in my years working for Eurotech, sort of working my way up and through. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is something. Um, it, it was probably some of the better the years of my earlier life that I remember in my work career. Mm. Um, you know, I had a lot of respect for Mike at the time. We used to go, being only sort of 18, 19 and 20, go off to the different circuits and mm. do testing and stuff. And it, it made a massive impression on me. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, which is probably evident in later life because now my favourite cars are the 2.7 RS. Mm-hmm. And, and it sort of maybe it brings something back to me or something I don't know yeah yeah it's uh there's definitely you can see where these hero cars come from can't you I mean yeah. on this podcast we've talked many times about why cars of a certain age suddenly skyrocket in value and it's often the basic principle of it's a car that made a massive impression on people of a certain age usually late teens early 20s but it was always out of reach and then suddenly they get into their late 30s, early 40s, and into the 50s, and they've got a bit of spare cash, and they can actually buy that car from that era. And it, I guess it's that's the version of life you always think of, that we go out and buy the car we always aspired to have. But the yours is a bit more of an exciting story, I think, because it's that's the car I want to focus and work on, because that was the one I enjoyed working on back in earlier in your career, which is quite interesting. It is, and I think that's probably just something that's sort of really... I mean, I had a, I had a sort of... As I would say a sort of break in between, so, but always still pretty much working on cars. So um, eventually Eurotech moved to uh, Birmingham mm-hmm. and he moved to a, a sort of an area of Birmingham called Witten, which was underneath Spaghetti Junction. Okay, yeah. And I lived sort of the other side of Coventry. Mm. So it was ideal when we first started at Eurotech and they were in Warwick because it was 10 minutes down the road and yeah. then they moved to Coventry, it was 10 minutes the other way down the road and then trying to get to Spaghetti Junction and underneath there in the morning at night time, it was just horrendous. It was mm. just a nightmare. So I left. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was there for several years and it was it was a difficult decision but it was probably the right time to yeah to move on and I left and that's when I first started on my own okay so I, I never really um I never really thought about it I went and rented a uh I went and rented a small unit in the town where I lived and I started doing um I tried opening it up as a Porsche garage and a Porsche specialist mm-hmm. But it didn't really work because I was sort of early 20s and there's not enough Porsches around to, yeah, to do that. Uh, so I ended up just doing a bit of everything. Okay. Um, which I did all right out of. And, it, you know, I had some good fun doing it. Um, and I, I built some nice cars for myself and sold some, sold them and sort of built, my, built a little bit of equity up. Um, but then that sort of came to a head with just sort of... Um, it was in the 90s then and it was just everything was financially difficult mm. so it just came to the point where I'd had enough yeah. you know I was working hard and lots of hours and not making as much as what I should be making mm. um, yeah you have the freedom because you're working on your own and it's your own business but so I, I decided to close it so mm-hmm. I closed the garage um, and then I went and worked for I did a little bit of work on the Silverstone Rally School because okay, um, yep. I'd done a bit of driving and racing myself yep. in the years. 
So I did a bit of work on the rally school there, which I hated. It was awful. <laughs> Lots of mud, uh, I'm assuming. It, it was just, I just couldn't think of anything worse to do. It was just, it, the, you know, it was prestigious sort of thing to do, but it was these um, birthday package sort of people gotcha. that you get there. You know, you, yeah. you win a birthday rally school to sort of drive and you'd mm. have to sort of pretend that they're doing really well and you'd be <laughs> you'd have to wear shiny shoes and black trousers and a black shirt and you'd be freezing cold out in the mm. out in the sort of half in the middle of a made up forest sort of thing. <laughs> um so I did that for a short while and then I got involved and started working up at Malcolm Wilson's on the World Rally team. Okay. Which is where the escort Cosworth came in. Right. Um so we were building the the WRC cars. Mm-hmm which would have been late 90s, mid okay. to late 90s, I suppose. Quite an exciting time then for rally. It was, but it, it was it was a job that I enjoyed doing, yeah. but then there was always a downside on everything I've done, mm. and that was the fact that that was in Cockermouth, right up in Cumbria. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So I was driving um, for about four hours in the, on a Monday morning, staying at a bed and breakfast while I was working there for the week, and then <laughs> driving back on a Friday night. Right. Uh, so that that sort of lasted for a few months. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then that was that was that was pretty much it. I sort of I veered out of the motor trade after that. Okay. Um, Just to go back on the, the you, you mentioned you know you never had an aspiration or a plan to run your own business, but you kind of found yourself at a point where you thought, I guess I have to either I go and work for somebody else or I've got this option to try and do do my own thing. So that was your kind of aspiration to be a Porsche workshop but then ended up doing a bit of everything at the point that that all came to an end was it an easy decision to say do you know what I've had enough I'm, I'm going to throw in the towel on this as my own business or was that that chapter a, a bit of a difficult one then effectively having to say goodbye to your own business and go work for somebody else because I always find this interesting some people love it they're like it's a relief I can turn that off for a bit go and work for somebody else whereas other people feel like they've kind of lost something well, where was it for, where, where did you sit um it, it it was it's difficult to say really i think it just it just came to the end sort of odd. so i'd had my own little garage for eight or nine or ten years or whatever it was and it just came to the sort of point where it was just now's the time mm. now's the time to change it's sort of i think you get to a point where you're doing a job or you're doing a business and it's just the same old same old sort of thing and just yeah. think actually it, something just clicks in you and it's just now's the time this is enough yeah you know, it, it's. I'm just going to be doing exactly the same. I was looking at the guy in the garage who used to restore Jaguars next to me and the unit next to me, and looking at him, and he's 20 years older than me. And I'm thinking, am I going to be here in 20 mm. years' time, just doing exactly the same as what he is? You know, moaning about customers and things like that. <laughs> I, I thought, it's just that's not where I want to be. So it was yeah, just that. Enough. It was just the time was right. Yeah. Would you ever? Have, would you have ever described yourself, or do you still? to this day describe yourself as uh, entrepreneurial or aspirational was there ever was is there a long-term or was there a long-term ambition I should say to get to where you are now or was it have you always worked on the basis of let's just see what happens and see how it pans out no a lot of it is just let's let's see what happens and and how it works out I've always considered myself lucky Mm. I always think I'm that person which will fall over in horse manure and find a pound in there <laughs> that, that's the way I feel of myself sometimes yeah. you know I, ju- I do feel it's just sort of um, luck 
a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I do consider myself lucky with a lot of things that have happened to me because mm. you look back and think that could have gone horribly wrong and I could have lost everything that I had, but yeah. It, yeah. it never really happened. You know, I've always stumbled into the right thing at the right time, um, which doesn't happen to many people. No. Um, so I, I do I do put a lot of it down just to pure luck, but it has also been a lot of work. Yes. You know, yeah. I, I am that person that still gets up at half past five in the morning and I get home at half past six at night mm. you know I don't I probably don't need to um, but I do because yeah. I enjoy it and I think I think that's where everything comes from if you enjoy what you're doing you'll make a success of it absolutely right yeah I agree I agree so you mentioned the after the rally school career took a bit of a change did it go in a completely different direction am I right to assume maybe non-automotive it did. It took a completely different direction in the fact that I ended up, um, I ended up getting more into. I wanted to get completely out of the motor trade completely because my my back was hurting and it was just sort of a physical thing that I thought, I've, now's the time to have a completely check change. I don't know what I'm going to do. I haven't really got a clue what I'm going to do. So, I um, I had sort of two two variations to my life at that time. So. I bought a stretch limousine. Okay. Not, did not see that one coming. No, I didn't think you would. So I bought a stretch limousine and started doing a limo service, uh, which was sort of fairly local and doing, you know, a, a few runs into Birmingham and things like that. Right. Which, which that was pretty much of a disaster, to be honest with you. Because it was a, it was a Lincoln Town Car, a stretched wow. thing, and it's pretty much you could guarantee it would break down or something and fall off it every time it went out on it. <laughs> you know, you know it was, they were just junk, and it, and it was just so that was a bit of a disaster. But it was a good laugh. Yeah, you know, it was, it was good fun. We'd, you know, I'd wear the stupid chauffeur's hat and, and have a bit of bit of a laugh in it. Uh, and then I, um, and then I decided to. I got very friendly with a guy who had a. Um, a jewelers and a and a pawnbrokers like okay. a money lender yeah, in yeah. Uh, in Coventry. I used to get on really well with him, and I just sort of a completely variation in what I did. I thought I could open one of those in Leamington in my in my town centre. Uh -huh. So I thought I'll give it a go. I've got nothing to lose. Yeah. So, and at uh, the time I had I'd, my house was paid for, which was a little house. It was probably worth fifty grand. So yeah. you know, I'd put all of my money into that. So I was I was safe on that side. Mm -hmm. I'll have a go, and there was a there was a little shop that came up to let, um, and there was a there was a little old guy that owned it, and it was an I think it was an estate agent's before or something, mm -hmm. and so I went and I went and saw him and just said, look, I want to open up a shop, and he said, well, it's three months rent up front, and then it's like you pay on the quarterly. I said, well, I haven't got the three months up front. Mm. I said, will you help me out and do a deal? I just want to have a go. <laughs> so and he was really nice. I got on with him straight away, yeah. and he just said, "I'll tell you what, give us the month's rent up front, move in, see what you can do." Mm -hmm. um, and then he he said to me, jokingly, he said to me, "When you've made enough money, you can buy all the flats and all the building off me." Okay. Uh, I thought, yeah, okay, because he owned all. It was a it was a corner shop in Regent Street, mm -hmm. and there was four flats above it, mm -hmm. and there was a sort of derelict basement underneath it. Uh, and I just thought, yeah, okay. And he was one of those proper old school, old school tenants where he'd come and fix everything himself. And gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just like cobble everything together, and it was 
uh, not the nicest of places and flats and stuff, but they were always full. Yeah. There was always somebody in them. Um, so I, I sort of, I turned into a bit of a music second-hand shop, completely out, out of the motor trade. Mm. Couldn't have been any further away. Although I always made sure I had a nice car for myself. Yeah. But I had nothing to do with it at all. And sort of, I was there all hours. Mm. You know, it was a proper open all hours shop. So I was there from 8.30 in the morning until six or seven o'clock at night, six days a week, because we would do Saturday as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I worked really hard at it. And, and lo and behold, after 10 years, I bought the whole lot of him. Wow. Um, I did a deal and he basically came to me and said I'm going to retire I'm going to put everything for sale mm -hmm. um, I, and I did say 10 years ago I'll give you first shout <laughs> so he I, must I, have seen something in you as the, the, the plucky guy coming in to have a barter on that first month's rent because I don't you know that's not a that's not a common thing is it where you walk in and go actually I know you want three months but I can give you one which then results in the the owner of that business and those properties going okay well in that case 10 years time you can buy the whole lot there must have been something about you that he saw I think it's a combination of one he was a he was an old school boy mm -hmm. you know so he was down to earth and he'd worked his way up from the bottom yeah you know what you could clearly see that he'd worked hard and he'd he'd bought all these little properties and and sort of rented them out and and made his sort of life through like that and mm -hmm. I think the other thing is he probably I'm a dead straightforward person, mm. so I, you know I, I won't I won't bull anybody up, you know, and I think that's helped me through all the way through until today, mm -hmm. you know. So people come to me today, I won't sell them something if I don't think they need it. Okay. You yeah. know, where there's a lot of people in the world cover everything up mm. and just make everything look like roses and sell you anything they can to make as much money out of them as they can. But yeah. I've never been like that. And I, I think he could see that I was a, a sort of genuine, you know, I've, I've grafted, mm. you know, I've worked hard. And I, I, can't, I feel confident to look back and say, yeah, well, I have worked hard yeah. all of my life. That's good. You know, I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's that many people that can do that. No, no, I think you're right, actually. I think you're right. It takes, does take a certain type of personality. And I often think this, you know, on this podcast, we talk to a lot of people that have been quite aspirational, built up businesses. And it's interesting what you say there about you class yourself as a lucky person, but also a grafter. Because I, often I speak to people that separate the two. They say, oh, I'm just so lucky. You know, everything's happened by luck without actually giving themselves the credit for, yeah, there might be an element of luck, but also it does take graft. You know, it, it pays off if you've got to a position in life where you're able to look around and go, oh, this is quite good. I've done quite well here. Unless you've inherited, you know, 25 million quid from your grandparents it's an accolade to be able to look around and go well I've done this I've built this you know, built it up and I think that's it's good that you recognize both sides because there is definitely an amount of luck but at the same time the far bigger portion of it is graft it's just pure hard work so yeah. from the bit of you've obviously got to the point where you've you've earned a bit of money you've bought yourself a little empire of uh, a little monopoly of properties <laughs> where do we go to get us to here so I'd, I'd, I'd basically after 10 years I'd had enough of my little shop sitting uh -huh. in staring out the windows it's probably obviously that I don't know whether it's 10 years or 8 years but it's that sort of period of time the same as when I had my first garage it's that mm -hmm. sort of now's the time to do something else yeah yeah um, so it was I 
within the last couple of years of me having that shop, I'd managed to do all of the flats up and increase the value of it quite considerably. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're all nice, presentable flats. The derelict basement, I'd turn that into a real luxurious two-bedroom, marble-floored flat and so nice. on. Um, and it was... I was starting to get bored, so I'd, I had sneakily started building cars and bikes again okay. in the garage at home, <laughs> you know, when I should have been working. Uh, so when my first daughter was born and I was spending more time at home, I built a really cool custom Harley. Okay. Because I've always liked bikes, so yep. I built a really cool Harley, big back wheel on it, long forks, skinny mm-hmm. wheel on the front. Uh, you know, and I enjoyed doing it. And then I, and then I started building other bits and pieces and I... Uh, I went and bought myself a Testarossa, Ooh, which was a bit random. Okay, <laughs> but it was I bought it at the right time. It was two thousand and must have been two thousand and seven or two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. and it was a, it it could have been two thousand and eight when the whole world was starting to collapse. It was, yeah, yeah, it was. And it was um, I was obviously with my little shop that I was running. I was buying, and selling gold, so we were making a lot of money out of gold at the time. Mm. Um, so it was just through that I managed to go and buy my first, I would say it's my first proper expensive car that I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a Testarossa, but it was, it was 30 grand. Was it really? Wow. Yeah. It was, so it was 30 grand in it. It had done 9,000 miles from new and it was a UK right hand drive car. Wow. You know, they're a 150,000 pound car now. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Did it, was it good value at that time? Or was it about, do you remember thinking it was about right? Because of course now everyone listening is going, oh my God, 30 grand. But back then, because you're right, 2007, eight, the world was just starting to collapse, wasn't it? With regards to the big I, global recession. I could have bought an F40 for under a hundred. <laughs> so... But it was what they were worth then. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it was good value. I think most of the Testarossas that I was looking that were for sale were for 45 and 50 grand, which was just too much money mm. back then. But then the realistic selling price when somebody had to sell it, it was 30 grand. Yeah. So it, it was it was good value. Mm. It was... Um, I, I would say the car... As a car, it was 
that they're crap. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The engineering was awful. If you you had the air conditioning on and wound the windows down, it would melt the fuse box. You couldn't do everything (laughs) at once. It was everything that was sort of stereotypical Ferrari Italian electrics was just dreadful. But (laughs) it was cool. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I, you know, I used it in the winter. I used it in the snow. I've got pictures of me driving it in the snow and things like that because it, it, it is what it was. Yeah. Um, now they're just sort of they're too expensive now. Mm. Um, I did actually work out it cost me. Um, everything went wrong with it, and I think <laughs> it cost me about a, a thousand pounds every hundred miles of really? it. Yeah. It was something ridiculous. Like I'm that. guessing that's a lot of the work you're doing yourself. So if you imagine. There's people out there that perhaps don't have the mechanical mindset. They're then you, how much more would they be paying? Take it into their local classic Ferrari specialist. Yeah, it would have been even more. So you know, it just makes you understand why they've all got low mileage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's, a, it's a completely different fact when it comes to the the 911s. So it was that that was the one car that I sort of had as a as a usable car, and then I I, I veered back into the old 911 world this is still mm-hmm. in my shop yeah so that's when it really started that i bought uh i bought an old 3.2 carrera okay uh which was 1983 or 1984 or something yeah. like that which had been diy restored by the guy you know mm-hmm. it was the silver impact bumper one yeah yeah and i thought and it was six grand you know so wow. it wasn't a lot of money back you yeah. know that was quite cheap so Thought I'm gonna I'm gonna build my 2.7 RS, which is like my ideal okay. fun car, yeah. white one with the blue decals on it. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what I did. So I've got a mate who had a body shop down the road. Uh, so I went and bought the bumpers from an old contact, Richard at Club Autos in uh, in Birmingham. He made the bumpers up for me, and he did a uh, an extended bonnet to sort of backdate it, mm-hmm. and the duck tail on it and stuff, and I. I probably spent five grand on it, I think. Yeah. Um, and it and it looked like a two point seven RS, you know, from a distance. <laughs> you, you look close, and it's got the wrong seats in it and things sure. like that. But it was good. Um, and then I I was working with an old guy called John who did um, watch repairs, and he used to sit in with me in the shop. And I just said, I I want to do another one, but I need to sell that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was when eBay was sort of beginning to be quite big. So I okay, yeah, said, yeah. oh, let's, let's just stick it on it. I'm going to stick it on eBay and see what happens because I, I wanted to build a better one because it was only done sort of half-heartedly. Sure. You know, it was okay, but it was sort of visually looked good, but mm. wasn't the best car in the world underneath. So I thought, I want to, I want to build it up and do a better one. So he, he, he said to me, stick it up for a lot more money than what you think it's going to get and just see what happens. Mm-hmm. So we did. So I stuck it up for £30,000 because that's what my Testarossa cost me. Wow. And within an hour, I'd sold it for £22,000. Cool. And that's when I thought, there's, there's something here. You know, there's, there's people that want these. Yeah. Which, the guy that bought it was really happy with it. And when you sort of look around, that's what it is. But it was it's just a simple thing of the sort of um, visualising what people want and what people would get yeah. you know it, I'd buy it back now for £22,000 without without a doubt <laughs> that car um, and then it's it sort of rolled on from there 
great. I mean, I, let's I go did back. another one, and then another one. Perfect. Just sort of... So at that time, because now it's become a bit of a thing, isn't it? You know, back, especially backdated 911s, taking a, a G series or in certain instances even like a 964, backdating it to look like a 1970s car. It's become a bit of a thing. There's lots of people doing it now. But back then, I'm guessing there probably weren't that many at it. Were you one of the first, you think? Yeah, there weren't many people doing it. It was back in 2010 or 11. Mm. Um, you know, so it's not... Well, it is quite a long time ago now. Time flies, <laughs> isn't it? It but does, yeah. It, it wasn't a massive thing that people were doing then. Mm. You know, it was people... If they had an impact bumper car, they might restore an impact bumper car, and that would yeah. be it. But, yeah. you know, it was something that could be done. Yeah. Um, but it, but it, wasn't very, it wasn't very difficult to do. Mm. Um, so I, I suppose it was a sort of... It was the early stages of um, the bandwagon yeah. that yeah. everybody's jumped on now, haven't they? <laughs> um, yeah. But... No, it, it it works, and that was the sort of beginning of it, really. Perfect. The the beginning of Rensport. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you say you bought a, you built a few. So uh, at what point did you look at what you were building and think, right, time to do this properly, time to find myself another premises? Well, it it got to the point where I was building them sort of half outside and half inside this big shed at home, <laughs> and using my mate's body shop and putting them together up there and my time was drifting away from the shop so mm. I was never there yeah. you know the the back in 10 minutes on the door was 10 days sort of thing <laughs> you know luckily I had somebody there to run it for me but um, it it sort of it evolved from um, building one or two cars to the point where I thought right I can build these and I, I, I'll try them at auction Mm. So, I, so I started, I built one car and I took it to Brooklyn's auction, yeah. Historics at Brooklyn's, um, and it sold straight away, and I, um, I made some good money out of it, and I thought, that's great. So I went and bought two, mm-hmm. and then built two. So the next Historics auction, I put two through the auction, and they sold, and they made quite well. Mm-hmm. I thought, this is pretty good. <laughs> so then I went and bought three. You know, just using the profits. I didn't, I didn't dwindle any of the profits or anything on sure. them. There wasn't massive profits, but I, I, I was doing quite well out of them, and mm. people were, people were really wanting them. You know, it was just sort of, um, it, it was quite exciting because I was building something that I knew I could sell, and I, mm. I, I knew I could make a bit of money out of it. And it's nobody else was really doing it, and it was sort of, you know, it was quite unique, mm. and it was, it was within a budget of. Um, you know, thirty and forty thousand pounds wasn't a massive amount of money back then. Mm. Um, and then it got to the point. So I was still doing these at the time, half out in the drive at home with yeah. like two little kids. You know, a baby, a newborn baby, and stuff. And I'd still got the, the shop. It, it still had the shop at yeah. the time. And then uh, I invited. I think it was on a Father's Day. So I took my son. Um, we went to an auction at Historics again. I used to use Historics all the time because mm. we got to know them all there and it was it was quite a well-run, sort of prestigious auction for what I was doing. So I, I took three cars there, which I'd done. One was a 964 backdated, which was the first one that I'd done, which was a Tiptronic. Oh, wow, okay, um, yeah. But it, it, was, it was just because I'd managed to buy a 964 Tiptronic for 10 grand. Mm. You know, and it, it, it was cheap. You can't get anywhere near anything like that anymore. No yeah. 
Um, so I had three 911s there, and I decided to sell my Testarossa as well. So I had the Testarossa there as well. And I came I came out at the end of it, so they all sold. Mm. I came out with at the end of it with well in three digits as a check from them. I thought, this this is... This is working. I've got yeah. something right here. So I sold my Testarossa for sixty-five grand. Perfect. Well, it was because the following year they're about one hundred and twenty. So it was... <laughs> yeah, I, was, I wasn't going to say. No, let's look at what they're worth now. <laughs> yeah, I've doubled my money, but the guy that bought it doubled his yeah, money. Yeah. Um, the Testarossa actually—that that's just a, a funny little side story. The. Uh, so there was two people bidding on the Testarossa mm. against it and there was a woman bidding on it and I thought it's just really bizarre it's just like some random woman was bidding on it and she'd won it mm-hmm. and she was bidding on behalf of her son who couldn't be there on that day because he was taking his driving test no way yep god <laughs> so he was 18 and his first car was going to be a Testarossa and I, I just thought Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that one. <laughs> um, but after that, so I'd gone with my dad uh, uh, to this auction and he, he and he just sort of spotted and said, you're doing all right out of these, aren't you? And mm. I said, well, yeah, you know, I'm putting a lot of hard work into them and I'm spending all my hours at home and mm. putting them together and, and working it. He said, well, you, you know, what's your next step that you're going to do then? Mm. I said, well, I reckon I really want to have a go at doing 911s again. Yeah. So he, his famous last words were, "You need to find yourself a garage." Mm-hmm. He said, "And if you need some help," he said, "I'll match what you put in." Okay. So I thought, fair enough. You know, that's because we're obviously in a, a multi-million-pound premises now. Mm. It didn't just appear. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he, he, I think that was his famous last words. I'll match what you put in uh, because. Um, I think it was about six months later, I turned around and said, I've sold all my flats ah. and my shop. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so that promise is still good, yeah, yeah Dad? <laughs> uh, and I had a house as well that I was renting at the time. Uh, I was renting it out, and, I, and I've sold my house as oh, well. Wow. Um, so it, it wasn't it, it wasn't such a uh-oh. Yeah. Um, it was... Uh, he was quite excited about it. Mm. Um, he had actually built this estate that we're on here now in the 80s. Okay, so right. it's a business village, which he'd done as a project. Yeah. Because uh, he'd got out of the motor trade as well mm-hmm. in the 80s and started in uh, property developing and, gotcha. and so on. So he built this estate in the 80s and he, he sort of said, I found a plot of land if you fancy building somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was looking everywhere at units and yeah. old garages and so on. I said, well, I don't really know anything about it. And he said, well, this is what we could do. Mm. And it was a proper old school. Here's my dad, sketched it out on the back of a, I would say a fag packet, but he didn't smoke. So it would have been <laughs> a, you know, it would have been a serviette in the pub sort of thing. Yeah. And he said, what, what do you think to that? We could, we could build that. Well, I'm, I'm thinking, how much is all this going to cost? Yeah. And he, and he sort of came up with a plan um, and he put his bit in. Uh, we probably put in a lot more than what we were expecting to put in because mm-hmm. we didn't have anything left by the time it was done. <laughs> um, but 
we're here today and it's you know it's, it's turned out so we actually own the building and we own the plot of land we're free old on here wow um and that's where we're at fantastic so that must have been quite a um quite a first day you know once the building's up so did you have in, even have input on how the building was going to be shaped and the layout and cause you've got a lift here haven't you to bring cars upstairs and were you given a bit of a blank canvas of right here's this did you go to the building and go this is what we want and this is how it's ended up it was a sort of joint venture, really, between the, between my dad and myself. Obviously, I I wanted it to work for uh, building cars and as a garage, mm. but he wanted it to work as a sort of designer and as a sort of masterpiece sort mm. of thing when you walk in here. Yeah. Um, and it sort of... It got built slowly because we couldn't just throw in thousands and thousands of pounds all in in one go so we mm. bought the plot of land it took a while to get the planning permission to yeah. actually build a big silver building in the middle of the Cotswolds not the yes. easiest thing to yeah, do that's a good point but he you know that's his forte and he managed to do it um and then you know we we evolved we've got lovely pictures of uh cars that are built just in the frame of the building mm. when it was all painted white and it's fireproof paint because it's a steel frame building of course yeah and then it sort of, we managed to get it up and built um, as a sort of shell. Mm. So we had a stone, you know, um, stone gravel driveway out the front. <laughs> um, and we didn't have any glass partitioning in the upstairs and the downstairs. We had some wood battens and things. So <laughs> we were a bit sort of like that for six months. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's evolved and we've sort of, moved on with the times and got everything slowly got everything finished so i think yeah. sort of 10 years later we're nearly there you've got to go around and start painting it again now <laughs> yeah. yeah so 10 years is about that's about the time you've been here as operating as a premises as as rensport was it has it always been rensport i think it's about eight years okay. i think we've actually been in the building yeah no so it's always been uh it's always been rensport we started out life as 911 rensport mm-hmm and I set up the website 911rentsport.co.uk, uh, which was fine while I was a small little man building mm. uh, a few cars here and there. But then when we moved here mm-hmm. in this big flash OPC style building that we're in, mm. uh, Porsche jumped on us then. Did they? Yeah, for the fact that we had 911 in the signage right. and we had Porsche in the signage and so on. And they, they sort of jumped up and down on the copyright sort of thing. Okay. Um, so we we changed the actual business name from 911 Rensport Limited just to Rensport Limited. Mm-hmm. That satisfied one of their uh, <laughs> one of one of their things that they wanted us to do. Um, we had to remove a lot of Porsche stuff from some of the marketing and and things that we'd done, which we did. We did it all straight away. Uh, and then there was they did start going down the line of the legal battle because we were using 911 Rensport in the um, in the website name. Okay, yeah. But luckily, there's hundreds of people that use 911 or Porsche in their yeah. website names. Yeah. So we basically just listed it all and just said, okay, if you're going to make me take that down, mm. are you going to take all these people down? Yeah. And that was the end of it then. Well, I think they let it lie at that. Yeah. But, you know, we took the Porsche off the front of the building. Yeah. 
because we had Porsche in big letters, big red letters on the front of the building to start with. <laughs> Probably took it a bit too far. Uh, but no, it's it, it's it's been it's been good fun doing it all. Yeah, I bet, I bet. It's uh, yeah, it wouldn't be the first company either, or even the last, I'm sure, to get that big uh, that big letter from Porsche. Of course, the famous one was Singer who got a, a big envelope handed to them at one point, and this is at the point they're up and running and building these amazing carbon fibre bodied cars, and Porsche came along and went, ah, can you stop saying it's a Porsche 911, please, and just call it a Singer? <laughs> so they had to change everything about the way that they were yeah. operating. You can kind of understand it, but at the same time, you'd, you'd like to think, come on, small company having a go at it, ultimately praising your brand, you know, singing the... Uh, the accolades of what you've achieved as an engineering company and a car manufacturer. Yeah. You know, let's get on with it. But anyway, they've, they've backed down now. They're happy with what you're doing. Yeah. They, they left us alone at that, to be yeah. fair. Um, you know, we, we said sorry and we sort of changed the things straight away on the website. And then mm-hmm. we put a little disclaimer at the bottom of each page and, yeah. you know, we sort of looked into it and, and so on. And, and it sort of, you know, we sort of conformed, mm. um, and then they they let us let us lie, you know. We're, we're not, we don't do what Singer do. Mm. We restore 911s, so our cars are still proper Porsche 911s. Yeah, you know they're not. We don't cut all the panels off. No. Yes, we backdate them, but structurally it still is that G series 911 underneath floors, doors, rear quarters, and so on. Yeah. You know, it's that same same car restored. Um, I think it's just a slightly different sort of um, concept. Mm. Yeah. So back when the doors have opened, you've you've got operational. What was the first, what was your typical go-to jobs when you were here? Was it just building the RS replicas? Or did you then start getting inquiries in from people asking for different bits and pieces? What was your kind of, your core week? weekly jobs it, it was the it's the fashion thing so the first backdated cars really were 2.7 rs's and that's what we did nothing but 2.7 and they all seemed to be in orange as well okay you know it's like everybody had tunnel vision <laughs> um so we would we just did an awful lot everything was a 2.7 rs yeah um and then sort of bravely or stupidly after a couple of years I bought a 911 Turbo. Okay. Um, for, I remember buying it, it was £16,000 and it had been restored. Okay. And So was this an original, 930? Yeah, original yeah. 1979 or 1980 uh-huh. 911 Turbo. It was a nice car in Guards Red and it had been, mm. a guy had spent a lot of money and time on it, but yeah. it was it was sixteen grand, which wasn't an awful lot of money. Mm. So I decided to ruin it. <laughs> Turn it into an RSR. Okay. Which was, was I being brave or was I being stupid? Um, but it really hit off, mm. you know, and it, and it was a, so it was a 930 turbo done as a 2.8 RSR, a 73 one. And yeah. it was in... Group C car. It, it was in blood orange. Cool. Um, and, it, and it was a, it sort of changed the way of everything then because it just showed that we diversified from... Just doing three two Carrera backdates or nine eleven SE backdates. Yeah, um, and I, I did build it originally for promoting because mm-hmm. it was I built it as my own car. I thought I'm going to build this one and keep it for myself. Mm. The amount of times I've said that, <laughs> and and I'll use it for demonstration and promoting. So we were actually 
I'd just finished it and we took it to, we had a first photo shoot, which was outside my dad's house because mm-hmm. this building wasn't finished properly at the time. So we did it at my dad's house in Stowe. Mm. And it was, um, a guy had come there because he'd come from London because he wanted to talk about uh, having a car built and commissioned. Okay, yeah. Um, so he came and met us there. and He basically just said, I want that. Ah. And, and it was just, well, it's not actually for sale. Everything's for sale. <laughs> it looks like it is now then. <laughs> so that was the end of my RSR. Oh. But, but that was the that was the beginning of diversifying from doing the 2.7 RS. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was still very similar and it was a 2.8 RS. But then it, it's sort of over the years, I've done, I've done a few turbos, conversions. They're hard work and they're not the best cars to drive on the road because mm. they weren't back then. Um, but then everything's evolved with fashion more than anything else. Mm, that's interesting. You know, we, we sort of changed. We started doing the, um, we started just doing the 911S style cars. So mm. it was a f- basically exactly the same as what we were doing, but with a rounded front bumper mm-hmm. and no ducktail on the back. Okay. And, yep. and the car was the same, but we'd put the chrome sill trims on it mm. and we'd call it a 911S. So the first ones that we did uh, were slate grey, mm-hmm. um, which we started doing as uh, Steve McQueen cars. Okay. Because it's the Steve McQueen car from Le Mans yeah, the, yeah. and the film. And they were a cool looking car, to be fair. So we were doing them out of three litre SCs and we, we did a run of about 10 of them. Uh, all They're all slate grey, but they're all slightly different Dolly cars, slightly different interiors or, or so on. Mm. Um, and we, we, we were having some quite success out of them and everybody that was coming in looking at one was saying, I want one the same as that. Yeah. And we were doing them. Cool. Um, then we got landed on by the McQueen Foundation for using the McQueen <laughs> word. <laughs> so that was, that, was the end. that was my next question. <laughs> that was the end of the Rensport McQueen. It, it then turned into the Rensport uh, Evolution S, I think we called right. it. Right. Um, yeah, they were worse than Porsche. I bet. McQueen were. Yeah, yeah they they got. Um, I don't know how you'd say it really. They got their ass in the hand about it. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, one of the things that I have been thinking about before I come here, now I popped in, before we are recording this episode today, I popped in the week previously, just to have a quick look around, a quick chat, which I sometimes do uh, ahead, ahead of time for a podcast, just to kind of figure out what we're going to say, where, what sort of stories we can peel out. And it was interesting, because you had on display, and it's parked downstairs now, isn't it, your current demonstrator car. Your You call it your car. <laughs> but again, it's going to be for sale for the right price. And that's a beautiful, um, you'll have to tell me exactly what blue it is, but it's a... Um, golf blue. Golf blue. Yeah. I should know that, really, shouldn't I? Golf blue, beautiful, beautiful leather trim inside. You've even had the roll cage trimmed in the same matching leather. It just looks fantastic. I would love to know what your main differences are now in yeah, comparing that car and how that car is built and looking downstairs at the cars you've got being prepared now, what are the main fundamental differences in the cars you're building today versus the cars you were building 10 years ago, if any? There's a, there's a massive difference. So the, the world's evolved. Mm. The, um, the word backdated car has evolved and mm. become accepted, yeah. uh, which is a big thing. We've obviously done a lot of... Um, 
a lot a lot of sort of research and changes and development on suspension and running gear and engines and so on mm -hmm. so the difference between um what the first if you just say for instance the first car that i built was a 3.2 carrera mm. a standard car um with a 2.7 rs body um it's then they're sort of now involved evolved into everything's completely changed so we're running tractive semi-active electronic suspension systems on them which is adjustable in the car so you've got you can completely change your driving modes with a massive a massive scope of adjustment um for driving miss daisy or going on a track day mm -hmm. um you know they eliminate the roll and so on we've gone through we now run uh, six-pot billet aluminium brake calipers on the front with 300 mil discs you know it's just monster stopping power yeah. we've upgraded uh, we still keep the torsion bars on a lot of these cars now on okay. these g-series cars because it's the analog feel mm -hmm. we could have easily gone to coilovers but we've kept that that old school torsion bar thing mm -hmm. um, which might be a bit crazy but it, it works really well yeah, yeah you know so we've obviously we're using hollow torsion bars instead of great big solid ones mm. you know just to sort of it's just design and technology in it really so the ducktail that i've got on my blue one downstairs is carbon fiber mm -hmm. although it's all painted in gulf blue still so it just looks like an original one it's it's a full carbon fiber one whereas the early ones that we did were just fiberglass replica ones mm -hmm. um we've we now use on that car so we've used lightweight metal which cost me a fortune to do on that car. I thought it'd be clever, but you can't really tell any difference whatsoever. <laughs> so, you know, we, we put a lightweight roof skin on it, which is a steel roof skin, so it's a proper one that the two sevens would have had on it. Mm. I've put the proper rear quarters on it from a 2.7 RS, yeah. rather than just retaining the original SC and 3.2 Carrera rear quarter panels. Um, and then I've gone to town and just sort of done everything that I think it should have. We've got electronic air conditioning in it. We've got Bluetooth DAB radio in it. <laughs> it's got everything you can possibly imagine in it. The roll cage is a work of art, the guys that trimmed it for me. Yeah. I, basically, I, I fitted a, a standard six-point um, safety devices roll cage into the car, did all the mounting points, mm. a bolt-in one, unbolted it, and then gave it to our trimmers. I said, I want this trimming in... <laughs> fine muirhead leather and I want it all whip stitching and doing let me guess they absolutely loved doing that job he hated it he said <laughs> please don't bring me another one of these and then and then he gave me the bill and I thought I'm not bringing you another <laughs> one of those because that was an awful lot of money I can only imagine but it yeah. does look really cool it does look amazing but yeah looking at it the intricacy of it I, I just looked at it and thought my god and, you know the, the work that they've done on it is incredible and then you know we've done the we've we've done all of the dash so we've probably sort of taken the half of the dash apart and backdated it to exactly what a 2.7 was so we've taken the vents out of the dash that mm -hmm. the later cars had and got rid of the vents and we put our proper aluminium trims in yeah. and i've put a proper pair of old school rally stopwatches into the dash and, nice, yeah. and things like that and then we we bespoke build all our own dials mm -hmm. so because i've done that to sort of uh, honour the 2.7 RS being 50 years old this year, the 73 car, I, I did all the dials. I do the dials myself. Mm. Um, so I did them all with gold-plated digits in them. Wow. You know, they're all 
slowly, painstakingly put on by hand. I spent hours doing them. I did actually have to sit back and think, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> but they look cool. Yeah. You know, some people say they're over the top, but it's a demonstrator and it's there to demonstrate Absolutely. everything that is over the top. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, that's the car that I'm, I, I'm going to be using this summer, mm -hmm. unless. I get that man come back and say, yeah, is it for sale? <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> I'm going to be that man. It might be pretending, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to be that man. I love the car. I think it looks fantastic. What sort of loan do I need to go and ask my bank manager for to buy that? You'd probably want to sell your house, maybe. It's, uh, I, would, I would be asking over £300,000 for that car. Yeah. Uh, and that's because... It's one, because I don't want to sell it. Mm -hmm. Two, because I think it's worth it for what other people are asking for their cars out on the market. Yeah. You know, I do, I do look at our sort of sort of competitors mm. and I look at what they're sort of charging for what they're building, you know, and the quality of what they're doing and what we're doing. Mm. And I think I'm well pitched to do that. But yeah. that's not what we charge for the cars. You know, if, if you wanted to commission one to build, it would be 250,000. Gotcha. It's just, I've got to pitch it up there because somebody might want it now. Yeah, And it would absolutely. leave me without a demonstrator. Well, yeah, absolutely, yeah, which is always a... Which has a happened year after year. <laughs> I've always built myself a car to use as a demonstrator and because everyone says, you've got one that we can go out in. Yeah. And someone's bought it, so I've always sort of... <laughs> It's difficult, isn't Moral it? of the story is just have six demonstrators all ready to go. <laughs> well, I, well, I have got the next one in build downstairs at the moment. Yeah, it's that Irish green ST. Oh, it is beautiful, yeah. Uh, so that's in build ready to replace that one because I just know the inevitable is going to happen. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's where it is. But somebody will get a fantastic car with that. Yeah, of course. It's had everything you could possibly imagine done on it. Mm. Um, and it does look great. I've not had anybody say I don't like that. No, no, I can't imagine you will. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. And, and with the engines, where do you... Uh, with a backdated car, obviously, the main focus is on how it looks. It's pretty, it's beautiful, they look fantastic. But, of course, the, the heart of it, the engine itself, is that something you take back to basics? Is it a full rebuild? Do you take engines out of existing cars? How, how does that process work for you? So we will generally use the... Um, we'll use the existing engine crankcases mm -hmm. um, because we do cars for the foreign market yeah. which need the original matching numbers for registering in different gotcha. countries. So we'll use the original crankcases but they are built from the bare crankcases mm -hmm. and the gearboxes are built from the bare casings. Um, but then we, we've developed a lot of work. We've developed it in a way that everything we do on them now is pretty much plug and play stuff. Mm. So the throttle bodies we've developed with AT Power, we've done it as a sort of uh, as a plug and play kit because it makes it our life easier. Yeah. You know, we we order it in. We obviously change change the different lengths of the throttles and and stuff, and then remap them for different engine configurations. Mm -hmm. um, and the suspension systems are sort of plug and play as well. You know, so yeah. it's relatively simple. But the the engines. They've evolved a lot. Mm -hmm. There's more modern technologies and materials that have gone into them. Mm -hmm. We don't don't tend to over-tune anything um, because we build them as fast road cars. Yeah. We don't build them as race cars. So 
you know the the average that we do is uh, so we do a lot of uh, we do a lot of 3.4 liter high compression conversions on the 3.2 engines, mm-hmm. um, and then we run throttle bodies on them. We change the cams. We obviously blueprint everything so it's perfect, um, but it's we don't overtune them to the fact we could get three we could get and we have had 325 horsepower out of them oh, that's pretty good which yeah. is a good horsepower yeah. you know it's been sort of working to get it to that mm-hmm. but it's not usable on the road so we sort of down tune them to 300 horsepower and they're fabulous on the road mm-hmm. you can actually drive them quicker down tuned yeah. than you can at the top yeah. You, you can sit in the pub and say, I've got 325 horsepower, <laughs> but I've only got it between 6,500 yeah. and 7,000 RPM. But yeah. it's not, that's not really what it's all about. No, so no. we build nice road cars. We're not race cars, not rally cars, mm-hmm. not track day cars, but we're, we're building that you could use on a track day if you wanted. Sure. And go round and round and round and round all day long. Yeah. Um, but no, that, that's where we are with the engines. And they are... We build the engines as well, so they're a work of art. Mm. So if you look at our engines with the throttle bodies on, yeah, it's just something people sort of drop the jaw at. Mm. You know, it's just like, wow, that looks that looks cool. Yeah, and yeah, that's that's what we're after. Fantastic. Typical customer? Is there such a thing? What's your uh, what's your demographic when it comes to people? Are there people that have been searching and searching, or is it somebody that might see a car on display at Goodwood and go? I want that. Where where do you find your customers that come forward? That's the elusive question, isn't it? Really, <laughs> we get a lot of business from um, Goodwood Revival. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had the argument with the people that do our social media and stuff that oh, everything that you sell is through our social media. But mm. I wouldn't necessarily say it is. More than fifty percent of people that have seen us at Goodwood Revival cool. come and order a car because yep. they've seen it in the flesh. Um, photographs and media can make any car look good yeah um, but when they've actually physically seen the cars and then they come here and physically see where they're built and how they're built yeah that's what sells it um, but we have people um, we have got people all over the world uh, we've just commissioned one last week for New Zealand wow uh, I'm in negotiations with a guy who wants one to go to Tasmania, <laughs> which I don't think you can get much further away no, than that, can no, you? No, that's right. Um, but we've done some in Europe. Our biggest customers are in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have recently um, got two models homologated now for sale in Tokyo. So we're actually wow. Japanese homologated. That's really cool. For our ST model and for our 911 Evolution S Targa, uh-huh. previously known as McQueen. <laughs> um, so they're actually homologated and they're buying quite a few. Great. Uh, so they've constantly got one in build. Mm. Um, they are at the um, they're at the motor show in Tokyo this year with one of them. That must, had, that must feel pretty special. To it know does. That you've got it a car feels good at the Tokyo Motor Show. It, it felt special the day that we actually got them homologated. Yeah. Because we've had to jump through some hoops to get cars homologated to get into Japan. Of course, yeah. You know, so it's gear ratios and emissions and mm. all sorts of stuff. You know, 
length of the body and the width of the body and you know we've had to do such a lot to get it through but um luckily i'm we're working with a a couple of guys over in tokyo they're both english mm-hmm. um but they are they've worked really hard at it and they've done it you know mm-hmm. so there is there was well there was until christmas there was one in a shop window for sale in tokyo city center wow um but it sold straight away so it's not there anymore <laughs> um but they're on the same problem now mm. um, in the fact that they don't have a demonstrator. Right. So they've had to borrow a car back from a customer to take to the motor show. Wow. Which is great for the customer. Yeah. But yeah. it's um, it, that, that's just the way I started, really. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, so that's our sort of, that's how far widespread we are. Yeah. And when it comes to customers coming forward and they, I guess it must be a real variance of people that know exactly what they want. They want their, they know what their car wants to look like. Perhaps they've got interior designs in mind. How broad is the spectrum from people that know exactly what they want down to the tiniest, finest detail versus I just want a cool old 911, please? There's a lot of people that just want a cool 911 and I want a white one. Okay. You know, and yeah. that's it. And that, that, they're great because you can just sort of build what you want and what I, what I think they should have. And they're always successful and they always like them at right. the end of it when it's finished. They're, but they're, I'd say it's few and far between people to know exactly down to the detail that they want. Okay. We've had a few and we've got a few in build. Mm. You know, people will send you a picture of an interior light and say, this is the interior light that I want. Okay. <laughs> but that's the that's the way it is yeah but that sometimes makes it easier because you don't have to think because you Mm. know exactly what they want yeah um but then sometimes we do get people in that have strange combinations of ideas Um, i do have to i do have to i'm quite blunt with some of them and just say you know what you can't put that in that yeah and it will sink in yeah and it does sort of diversify but it it's sort of um, there's not many that are that critical and that know exactly what they want that's good yeah uh, and probably 50% of people completely change their idea from the beginning of commissioning a car to halfway through it's you mm. know we, we've gone from narrow body to RSR back to ST <laughs> sunroof no sunroof yeah leave the sunroof yeah uh, you know it, it does change but that's the beauty of having the car built for yourself yeah you know, yeah. you're not in a you're not in a system at the factory at the Porsche factory where you've ticked all your boxes. That's what you're getting. You can't change yeah, it. It's yeah. in the line. You know, I I do always phone them up just before it goes into paint and say, "Are you sure you want it Irish green?" Yeah, yeah. And it, it, you know, randomly, actually, now I've decided I want it orange. <laughs> On the more extreme side, is there? Have you ever actually had to say? I'm sorry, but no, because I, I love asking this question to anyone that builds bespoke cars or custom custom builds. There must be a limit where where you go. Like, I I get what you're asking for here, but I I just can't. We're not doing bubblegum pink with Swarovski crystals in the headlining. I'm sorry. Does that has that ever happened? Uh, no, it hasn't really. Oh, that's good. I'll I'll, I'll build what any anybody wants. Cool. You know, if they're um, but I, I have 
the only time I've said no is when somebody's had their own donor car and they've said, can you do me a body conversion? I don't want to do the engine and I don't want to do the gearbox and I don't want to do the suspension, yeah. which is how we used to build the cars 15 years ago. Uh-huh. It, it doesn't do your life any good for yeah. the fact that it's perceived as a Rensport car going down the road and it's leaking oil and smoking out the back and it sort of doesn't do doesn't do you mentally any good to no. sort of someone says I saw one of your cars and it was like dripping oil all over the floor and smoking <laughs> yeah. like a good one and rattling when it went around the corner so that's the only thing that we won't do yeah um, so they are all bare bespoke builds we obviously look after everybody's car once they're built um, we've had strange um, we, we've had strange ideas and requests which we've done uh, I would say the strangest the strangest one that we've done was in the earlier years. Uh, it was a guy called Rob from Holland who got in touch with us because he wanted his dream 911 building. Um, it was based on, he wanted a left hand drive car. So I said, you're going to have to find your own left hand drive car for us to do it. Yep. Um, which he did. Mm-hmm. He went and found one from America, which had done, if I remember rightly, 230,000 miles. Wow. And it's like, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it wasn't rusty, but God, it was worn it out. Lived a life, yeah. Um, and his request was he had actually, so he'd been with his partner um, for, uh, I think, 20 years. Mm. Uh, and then she'd been diagnosed with cancer. Okay. Um, and subsequently she'd died from cancer. But before she died, they got married. Right. Um, and her, you know she was a Porsche fanatic as well mm. and then they got married she was in a, a sort of really vivid purple wedding dress and he was in a matching purple tie and he showed me the pictures of it mm. he said I want my 911 building and I want it this colour exactly wow. so it was it was a difficult one so mm. I said well you're going to have to courier me the wedding dress and we'll, we'll get it matched to that colour yeah. which we did wow um which was great. Uh, it, well, I wouldn't say it was great, but it, no. you know we might, we managed to do it. We got the exact colour that he wanted, uh, and that was a sort of that was one of the earlier first bare shell builds that we did. Mm. Uh, so we had the engine done and he had everything done on it. Um, but it was it it was quite bizarre building it. And there was a, the other stipulation was I need to have it ready on exactly this day. Okay. Was, okay. And it, and it was like persistent that it was ready on, you know, a random day like 16th of August or something like that. Mm-hmm. He said, oh, no, I need to come and collect it on that day. So this, this is just getting starting to get a bit weird now, mm. isn't it? But it just turned out it was the exact one year anniversary that she died. Okay. So it was, it turned into something from a bizarre request to something that was like really emotional for yeah, us to all build and do as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it was nice. He's still got the car now. Fantastic. You know, and he's been in touch, and uh, although it's over in Holland, mm. um, but he's still got it. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, you, you. It's so easy to just regard cars as somebody's splurge, isn't it? Okay, I've yeah. got a bit of money, and I want to go and build it. But sometimes the stories behind why something is created and the way that it's created can mean so much more than just a bit of metal on four wheels that but it, it you know that car was just such an emotional story yeah you know it's one that that's one that just stays with you forever yeah it's, it's not the 
you know, there's there's always there's the very common story of it's my childhood dream to have one yeah. of these cars. Yeah. yeah, we've all got that. But when you've got the story behind it like that, that's yeah. that sort of puts a lump in everybody's throat. Absolutely. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, but it was it was nice to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And how often do you have yeah you know, people that come with their dream list and say right I want it to be this color I want it to have this interior? Do you allow them to come in through the build process to come and have a look and see how it's all coming together? Yeah, so we 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 tell everybody they can come in whenever they want. Cool, uh, which helps mm. uh, and people want. Most of them never come in, you know, but we send them photographs because yeah. a lot of them, um, a lot of them are. Are wealthy people that work very hard for what they've got mm. and they don't have time to come and do it but yeah. then you know they do make time to come and see you um if they can mm-hmm. but we always say we take lots of pictures throughout but you know we always do say if you're in the area just drop in and have a look yeah um you know see if we've done anything or if we haven't <laughs> And you mentioned as well a waiting list at the moment. So what is the waiting list? If someone if someone phones you this afternoon and says, right, here's what I want, and, and this is the colour, this is the spec, uh, I don't have a donor car, I don't have anything else, just go off and get me something. What's uh, what's the turnaround time looking like at the moment? I've got to the situation now where I keep donor cars in stock, so I always sure. keep a, a G50 car, a Targa and a Coupe in, because they're the most popular ones we do, so I don't have to worry, I'll just replace that car when someone buys that as a project. Mm-hmm. It gives me a month or so to go and find one then, instead of desperately trying to find one and put a deal together. Yeah. So the waiting, the, the build time is a year, so it's 12 okay. months yep. uh, from the sort of the, the next build slot, which is normally like the next month. Mm. It depends how busy we get. Mm-hmm. It could, you know, after Goodwood, we end up with a load of requests and it's sort of the next build slot can be January rather than October sort of thing. Gotcha. But it, it, it's 12 months build time. Um, we did laps uh, a couple of years ago and it was squeezing up to 18 months, wow. which was, it was, it was just through... Uh, we couldn't build them quick enough. Mm. Um, I've got more guys working here now. It's been hard getting good guys, but I've got some good guys here now. Great. Um, but 18 months is a bit too much yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah, it must be bittersweet knowing that you're in demand. You've got a lot of people that want your product, but at the same time, you're kind of feeling like, oh, I need to get this stuff yeah, out Yeah, you can time yourself out of it. If you say yeah. to somebody it's going to take you two years, it's like, mm, yeah. I'll go and find something else in that time. Yeah. You know, or the, or the mood's changed. Mm. Um, 12 months is acceptable yeah um, I think because well you can't do it any quicker than 12 months properly no, no. yeah um, best and worst parts of the job I'd say the best part of the job is the uh, best part of the job for me is doing the deals with people mm-hmm. and putting the project together I find that quite enjoyable yeah I'm not a pushy salesman I, I won't chase anybody up if somebody comes in and they want to go through a project and so on, I won't phone them back up again. Mm-hmm. If if they want the car, they'll come back. I'm yeah. not that person that's like, just following up whether you want to do this car or not. Sure. I'm not a second-hand car salesman. That's yeah, not what yeah. it's about. Yeah. Um, if they want it, they want it, don't they? They, they all come back. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, that's one of the good parts of the job. The other good part of the job is I get to build my dream cars mm. and use my dream cars. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my dream car last year was a Gulf Blue 2.7 RS. 
with a quick engine in it, a limited slip diff, and all the bells and whistles on it. And mm. I think I've built that. Yeah. Um, takes a bit of the excitement out of it sometimes when you know you can do it. <laughs> you know, but no, I've built it, and that's a fabulous car. So that's a good part of the job. Yeah. Uh, the final product going out the door that's a good part of the job uh, I would say the hardest part of the job is um, keeping everything running smoothly mm. keeping it keeping the factory conveyor belt going and making sure that the body shells are back here on time the parts are on order in time mm. and everything's moving yeah uh, that's probably the that's probably, the, I wouldn't say it's a dull part of the job, but it's a sort of bit of a mundane part of the job. Yeah, I suppose if you're waiting on lots as well and you've got cars on ramps, waiting, all waiting for bits, it can kind of feel like nothing's happening. And Do you find, is there, I mean, I wouldn't even know where to start with regards to like um, external suppliers of things like body panels and parts and trims like that. It's, I guess there's not, there's a few bits and pieces you make in-house and you're fabricating in-house, but a lot of it, I guess, is having to come in from other, other sources as well. Most of everything that we do is done in-house, but there are, you know, parts are... Every, everything's fairly readily available. We struggled a little bit in COVID times because there was no lorries going backwards and forwards, yeah, but of course. Um, everything, every, everything is fairly, fairly easy to get. And we sort of, if you keep on top of everything, we keep most of the stuff in stock that we know we're going to use. Um, it's difficult sometimes because you don't want to put thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds into stock. Yeah. Um, when you don't, when you know you don't need to. Mm. Uh, as time's gone on and as we've got into sort of today, we've got the the contract work that we do do uh, is the body work, which we've now got a good team of uh, body shops. We use two body shops now to actually do the paint work um, and the trimmers. Trimmers has always been the, the ball ache of my life, um, but we've now got a really good trimmer who's very efficient, okay. very good at doing what they do, um, and very expensive. <laughs> but it's the quality that's yeah. more important than anything else. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, that, that's it, really. That's the. That's how to build a uh, backdated. 911 RS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spend yeah. loads of money. Yeah. It must be nice, though, as you say, you know, getting, finding suppliers that you can trust and, yeah, trimmers, trimmers and um, painters, I guess, you know, they're the two jobs that you probably definitely do want to outsource, aren't they? You don't want to have messy paint shops and prep shops in, in the same building. So knowing that you've got some companies you can rely on, even if they are a bit more expensive, is always going to be a luxury rather than a, a hindrance. Yeah, well, it's it it's all stuff that I've I've done all every aspect of it myself. So I, mm. I have done I've done welding, I've done fabrication and panel beating, I've done painting, uh, I've done every part of the bodywork that you can imagine. Mm. I've done jigging of crashed cars and all sorts. <laughs> yeah, um, and then uh, trimming as well. We still do a lot of trimming in house, uh, but the the sort of intricate stitch working and stuff we put that out because that needs to go to somebody that's very professional at it yeah, yeah. you know you couldn't put a wonky stitch across a dashboard it no. just look it'd be a disaster and it, would, it just doesn't work yeah um but that no we've we've got you know the 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 ones that we use now are very good but we are sort of still still in control of what we want doing mm -hmm. um Plus, we know what we can do and what you can't do. Yeah. You know? 
but no, it's it it's made life a lot easier with with time and finding good contacts. Yeah, of that's what's made the business a lot easier. Yeah, perfect. Now you mentioned you sort of perhaps purposefully or not you kind of work on ten year chapters and you had your ten years of your shop. Your, few years of doing your workshop you say it's coming up to about 10 years that you've been here what do you think the long-term plan is or or looking ahead into the future what do you think you're likely to be working on perhaps 10 years from now do you think it will still be the 1970s looking cars or do you think by that point there might be a new generation of owners and drivers wanting something different you know for example will you have 996s 997s on the ramp downstairs at any point do you think Hell no. No? no. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> that will be like having an electric one, wouldn't it? <laughs> You'll go to hell if you build an electric 911. <laughs> it, uh, I, I don't know because I'm sort of, yeah, my life does seem to have gone into the 10-year chapters. Mm. Um, but I think I'm now, um, maybe that was because I was younger, I'm, I now really enjoy what I'm doing. Yeah. And I'm sort of coming up to the end of that 10 years, but I'm still really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's, that's it, really. Yeah. What, what can you go and do if you don't enjoy it? You know, I come to work early and I go home late. Mm. And it's just sort of, yeah, you know, I've got my family to go back to and I do everything. You know, all of this is all for my family and for the home, mm. you know, and the house that we live in and everything. But the, the most important thing for me is I really enjoy... I think it's important for everybody that you you really enjoy doing what you do to make a living. Yeah. And I really enjoy this. It's good fun. Even the bad bits are good fun. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it's not. I just take I take the bad bits as a challenge. That's it. Yeah, you'd like it, a challenge to keep you on your toes. If, if everything was easy, I think it'd probably end up being boring. Yeah. But it's like building cars. Every every part can be a challenge. Mm. The the challenge with this place is thinking of the next thing to be ahead of the competition yeah yeah what, what are we going to do next how can we be better than what we're doing so they're constantly evolving you don't really notice they're evolving but mm. when you put that 10 year old car against the one today that's it there's masses of difference yeah you know yeah okay and the last question so thinking back to back when you were talking about your career in the very early stages and the apprenticeships and walking into the Porsche workshop let's imagine a parallel universe you went to Tom Walkinshaw Racing instead and perhaps you weren't working on 911s where do you think if it wasn't Porsche if it wasn't 911s what do you think you might be working on instead spaceships (laughs) 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 I don't know. I I, I really enjoyed. Um, so I, I built a couple of a couple of custom Harley Davidsons, uh-huh. and I really enjoyed building those. But it's you know I I could have found it very easy just to sort of go into that. Mm. Uh, but that's you know that's that's not where it is. Obviously, we're in a we're in this universe, not the parallel one, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did do. I did go and do so sort of throughout my time I, d- I did do a bit of saloon car racing mm. which I did in a Sunbeam Lotus which was a car that my dad designed and it was like a sort of you know a local car because mm. they were built in Coventry and yeah. you know I built it and developed it and had really good fun in that so 
I did enjoy building that. So I suppose I could have gone into doing uh, historic race cars or, or something like that, but it it hasn't worked out that way. No. no. It's, uh, I don't know whether I would enjoy it so much. Because it, it's nice to build something for people that are using it as an everyday car mm. or can use it as everyday cars. And we, you know, we, we build cars for couples who go, you know, continental touring in them. Yeah. And you do get a good feeling, you think, yeah, they're actually really enjoying and using something that you've built. Yeah, yeah. Race, race cars are, can be quite depressing. Mm. You can build a beautiful looking race car and then it does 10 laps and it comes back with all the sides smashed in and the engine hanging out of it because uh, it's been over revved. It's just sort of completely abused, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Uh, I think uh, I think you, f- you picked the right universe. You're in the you're in the right seat, aren't you? For sure. Yeah. Perfect. Well, if you, dear listener, want to learn more about Rensport, you can have a look in the description below. I'll include some links there to take you through to uh, the website and the social media feeds as well. It is well worth having a look. Um, we are keeping our fingers crossed. Bearing in mind, we're recording this in uh, March, and it's still kind of trying to make its mind up weather-wise, whether it's going to snow or be sunny and warm or rain or who knows so uh, we have had conversations haven't we about the possibility of going out in uh, the fabled blue car it's downstairs uh, and ready it's uh, <laughs> well only if it's only if it's not but it raining. started raining yeah yeah um so there there is most likely going to be something to look forward to perhaps on the youtube channel or keep an eye on the social feeds we will keep you updated uh because there may be some uh, some content involving a drive with one of the Rensport cars the the golf blue demo car that's currently available um Perhaps, you know, if, if we're coming back in four or five weeks, it might have sold by then. <laughs> you might have, you no. might have had that guy come in with the no, cash. No, it won't. No. <laughs> It'll be here. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Paul, thanks so much. It's been fascinating learning about you and the brand, and, and it's going to be fascinating to see what happens in the next 10 years as well. Well, uh, I'll keep my fingers crossed that I don't walk in and see a 997 on the ramps. <laughs> <laughs> nice. being backdated to a 996 <laughs> nice, but it's been good to talk it's brought back a lot of old memories to be honest with good. you excellent yeah. excellent right well good luck for the rest of the year I'm sure no doubt we'll bump into each other we do a lot at uh, Goodwood and various other events so I'm sure you'll be there with some cars I'll come over and say hello maybe stick a microphone in your face again and have, say another quick hello we'll be there perfect thanks very much the Driven Chat podcast in association with Paramex Digital you dream it we bring it to life Find out more at drivenchat.com. Oh, wow. You've made it to the end. The very end. And it's John Markar here again, reminding you that this podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now run its course and has come to an end. To find the new format, search the Driven podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps. Thanks. Bye.